Well, if you have your worship guide, turn to the sermon text, which is Luke 1, starting in verse 26. If you'd like to use your Bible or if you'd just like to listen. While you turn there, just by way of reminder, uh, Janine pray, thanking the Lord for the seasons. We are in the season of Advent, uh, which means um, not just that Christmas is coming, but it means that we're taking some time intentionally on purpose as a church to focus on uh, practicing the discipline of anticipation, practicing uh, looking forward to Christ's second coming, practicing focusing on that, hoping for that. And the way that we practice this, joining with Christians all over the world during this season, is by meditating on his first coming. Uh, the, maybe if we could sum up the theme of Advent, it's uh, remembering and placing our hope in the truth that everything that Jesus accomplished, everything that God accomplished in Jesus in his first coming, everything that God made true, he's going to make visible when he comes again. That's what Advent's about. Remembering that. Hoping for that. Focusing on that. So these four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're moving through the Christmas story in Luke. And each week, our, our theme, we're not hitting everything we can in these passages, but we're trying to hit one thing in each text that helps us to focus on anticipating Christ's coming. So that's where we are, that's what we're doing, and hopefully by now you have found the passage, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, town in Galilee, to a virgin who pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was great, greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We know that your word will never fail. So now in this time, I pray that your word will go out from you. Lord, I pray that we would hear you. We would receive you, cling to you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. The Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So this story of the angel Gabriel coming uh, to Mary, young Mary, uh, who at this time uh, seems like from what I have read, most people are pretty sure that she was probably a, a young teenage girl at this time. Early teenage years was about the time that young women got married uh, in this time and place in this culture, and she was engaged to be married to Joseph. She was legally engaged. That was a, a, a binding. Uh, it was much stronger than engagement is in our culture. And it was during this time that the angel who we had seen had just appeared to Zechariah, the holy place. Remember that story from last week? And announced to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would, um, would conceive. It's six months after that. And Gabriel shows up in this little town of Nazareth to announce to, to Mary that she is going to miraculously conceive. This story is uh, famous. It's part of the Christmas story. If you've been around Christianity at Christmas time at all, you've probably heard this. In our tradition, the Reformed tradition, uh, this story is something that we hear and talk about, but we don't focus very heavily on, at least not in comparison to our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox traditions. This story, uh, it has an official title. It's called the Annunciation, the Annunciation of our Lord, or sometimes the Annunciation uh, to the Virgin Mary, or of the Virgin Mary. Annunciation means like the announcing. The story is like super big deal in the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox traditions. They focus very heavily on it. But in our tradition, we talk about it, but it's 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 just sort of it's it's not as focused on. And I could we can speculate on why that is, and maybe we can do that over coffee another time. But what I want to do is I want to do the thing that in our tradition we haven't done very well. I want to take 30 minutes. Lord willing, and make the, the recognize the story for the big deal that it is. Really pay attention to it. And the question is, what does God have for us in the Annunciation? What does God have for us today in the Annunciation? Uh, I want to draw out like one, try to draw out one big thing. What does God have for us? Hope Presbyterian, 2022, Portland, Oregon, metro area, in the Annunciation. Well, I think to answer that question, we need to ask, uh, what did God have for Mary in the Annunciation? Uh, what, what was the big thing in Gabriel's message? Uh, what was the message? And the answer is fairly simple. Gabriel's message, I think we can sum up in one word. Jesus, that was the message. The, the message of Gabriel 
to Mary was in the name that she was, that Gabriel uh, was, that, excuse me, that Gabriel told Mary to give the child that she was about to miraculously conceive and then later on give birth to. Says the uh, angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Now, at this time, Jesus was a pretty common name. It was, uh, at this time, the, the cultural, culturally common derivative of the old Hebrew name Yeshua, which we know as Joshua. And at this time, there are lots of little Jesuses running around. Just like today, there are lots of little kids named Josh. So this would kind of like the angel says, Mary, you are, you're going to conceive miraculously give birth, and you're to name him Josh. Um, so the punch in the name is not necessarily its cultural uniqueness. The punch in the name is in its meaning. Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation, or sometimes abbreviated Savior. You will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you will call him Savior. The Lord is salvation. Gabriel is telling Mary something much greater than the fact that she was going to miraculously conceive as a virgin and give birth to a son. Now, that in itself is pretty great. In the last hundred years, uh, or so, in our culture, there's been great debate over whether or not Mary was actually a virgin. And in our tradition, one thing that we have done is we have made that sort of a line in the sand, a battle line. Do you believe in the virgin birth? If the answer is yes, then you're in. If the answer is no, then you're out. Or if you're on the other side of the line, then the theological family tree of this church, then if the answer was yes, then you're out. If the answer was certainly not, then you were in. It's been a battle line, the virgin birth. And in our culture, whether or not Mary conceived as a virgin, gave birth as a virgin, has been a really big deal. But Gabriel came to tell Mary that she would conceive as a virgin and give birth. But the point of his message, if we could imagine it, was greater than even that. The miraculous conception was the smallest miracle that Gabriel was announcing on this day. Something even greater was the primary content and thrust of his message. He was telling Mary that salvation is coming by way of a miracle that God was about to do in her. Salvation was coming by way of a miracle that God was about to do in her. Now, Mary was a young woman about to be married. Notice that she's here by herself. Joseph, who at this time would have been her legal representative, her protector, person who cared for her, Really important, especially in this cultural time. Uh, as a young woman, she culturally would not have had very many publicly recognized rights. 
at this time as a young woman who was not yet married to show up pregnant would have been more than just frowned upon. It could be dangerous for her. She would bear cultural shame that many times in this time and place led to total uh, ostracism, being outcast and sometimes violence. In this moment, she is so small. Also, she's in Nazareth. Nazareth was a backwater town. In fact, we have found, we just being scholars today, scholars have found, scholars found zero references to Nazareth outside of the Bible, outside of what we have in the Bible. They found zero references to Nazareth even existing until about 100 years ago. It wasn't even on the map. It was mostly overrun. It was mostly Gentiles. It wasn't really a Jewish town as we would think of it. It was outside of Judea, the main Jewish uh, district. It was, uh, it was dirty. It was rough. She is nobody. And the angel shows, shows up and says, salvation, God's salvation is coming by way of a miracle that he is doing in you, Mary. That's amazing. That's staggering. And for those of us who maybe have read this story so many years is simply a proof text for a doctrinal line in the sand, that should blow us away. And for those of us who read this as merely the nostalgic part of the Christmas story, but maybe not really pertinent or relevant for deep spirituality, that should blow us away. And for those of us who maybe grew up in a tradition that read this as some sort of affirmation of some kind of inherent greatness or righteousness in Mary that earned this place that should blow us away. God's salvation is coming by way of a miracle in this nobody. Now, it is important for us to ask, what do we mean by salvation? I remember when I was a young kid growing up in church, um, I went to youth group. I got fired, all fired up about my faith. And somebody had told me at one point if I brought my Bible to school and carried it around, then that would be a good witness and maybe people will come to Christ. And I don't remember if that ever happened, but I did bring my Bible to school and I was proud. And I hung out with people who were proud of that kind of thing. And we used to go around and we used to say things like, ask people, are you saved? Have you been saved? You know, Jesus saves. And all that stuff is, please don't, please don't get me wrong. All that stuff is wonderful. But at some point, and I don't remember an exact time, but I do know I came across this line of thinking early on. At some point, I heard somebody ask me or ask somebody else, or I saw it somewhere and it struck me. Somebody asked the question, save from what? And I, I remember realizing 
Oh, the fact, if Jesus saves, if we get saved, then yeah, say, what, saved from what? What is saved? What kind of salvation are we talking about? And I think that's really important when we talk about this story, because if the big miracle of the Annunciation is that God's salvation is coming into the world by way of a miracle in this young woman in Nobodyville, then what kind of salvation, if it's a real big salvation, that means this is as important as we think it is. But if it's not that big of a salvation, then it's back to just being a nice story. So what is what is this salvation that Gabriel is speaking of? That's important for us. In fact, the whole meaning of Advent and Christmas hangs on that. Well, again, just like the content of the message, we can find it in the name, Jesus. The content, the answer to the question, uh, what kind of salvation? We can also find it in the other name that Gabriel gives for Mary's to be son here in the text. Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. That's name number one. And he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. Mary says, how can this be? Since I'm a virgin. Angel answered, Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the son of God. We have two other names here besides Jesus that Gabriel gives concerning this coming child, son of the most high and son of God. Now in this text, these are synonyms. They're, they mean the same thing. You guys remember back when we did Abraham's story and that whole episode with the priest king Melchizedek and Abraham knelt before him and Melchizedek blessed him in the name of God most high, right? God over everything. Most high was a very common name for God in this time. The angel says that Jesus, this, the Lord saves, Savior, will be called the Son of God. Which God? The most high God. Now, that's important because that phrase, Son of God, that tells us what kind of Savior he's going to be. And that tells us what kind of salvation he is going to bring. Now, to our ears, when we hear the term son of God, that carries a world of meaning. When we say Jesus is the son of God, do you believe in the son of God? That carries all kinds of theological weight. We think about Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I think the, 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 the most, maybe, I would say, I would say maybe, maybe the most beautiful and concise articulation of all the beautiful meaning that the phrase Son of God carries for us. We can find it written in our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession. And it says this. It says this about Jesus, the Son of God. 
This is from Westminster Confession, chapter 8, article 2. It says, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being the very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conver conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Catch all of that? When we hear the term Son of God to our ears, it carries a wealth of theology about Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the eternal God, the Son. It carries all kinds of meaning about Jesus being the, the, um, uh, the, the divine human, God and man together in one person. And all of uh, everything we believe as Christians hanging on that reality, it carries all these connotations in this theology of Jesus being uh, eternally one with God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit. It carries, it's, it, it's like the term to our ears, son of God, is like, an, it's like a train engine and behind it is, is like a mile of cars with all kinds of beautiful doctrinal um, mysterious truths that follow after. When we hear Son of God, and we can sit and watch the train go by for hours and hours and hours about the divine human, the Christ, who came into the world to save it. So when Gabriel says to Mary, he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, to our ears, we hear all of these things. But Mary had never read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Mary was a first century Jew. Mary had no verbal, logical, doctrinal construct for Trinity, one God and three persons. And Mary did have, I should say, but Mary did have a verbal, articulate, accurate, doctrinal construct for Son of God. That is true, but very, very different than how we in our thinking today hear Son of God. We hear the phrase Son of God through New Testament brains that have been that have been uh, working with this phrase in the community of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years. Mary hears the phrase Son of God through Old Testament brain, working in the community of the Holy Spirit in her time and place. So if we're going to ask what kind of salvation is God bringing to the world through this young woman in Nobodyville that he is announcing here, we can affirm, yes, everything that we believe, but we need to take time to try to look at it through Mary's lens and try to hear 
salvation is coming through first century Jewish ears. You understand? So what did son of God sound like mean to first century Jewish people? Well, it's included in what we would put in our train, but it's a little different. Let me show you. Son of God. To an Old Testament Jewish brain, son of God. Um, the first meaning would come from Exodus 4. When Moses was telling Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron were speaking for God, saying, let my people go. You guys saw that movie? It's in the Bible. It's not just a movie. Let my people go. Moses is like, all right, never mind. I'm not going to do it. And then there were the plagues. Remember the last plague was the death of the firstborn son. At that time, when Moses announced was going to when God told Moses that he was going to kill the Egyptians' firstborn sons, he tells him, "Say to Pharaoh, this is Exodus two, sorry, Exodus four twenty two and twenty three. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said: Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborns." The prophet Hosea, reflecting back on this, um, God is speaking through the prophet Hosea, reflecting back on this, and he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. So the first thing that we find in the Bible that's called the son of God is the people of Israel, the nation, the people of God. God called the people of Israel, enslaved in Egypt, his son. And when he said, let my people go, Moses said that. He was saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. This is God's son. And if you don't let God's son go, he's going to kill your son. So in the first century Jewish brain, son of God, first thing you would think is people of God. But there's more. We move on through Jewish history. The people leave Egypt. Uh, they go in 40 years, they go into the land. There's the time of the judges where there's no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everything was chaotic. Um, you know, we, uh, it was terrible. And then the people called for a king. We need a king to unite us. We need a king to lead us. Uh, we need a king to help us be faithful to God. And they appointed their king. And it was terrible. And then God appointed his king, the humble king, the shepherd king, David, called him from Nowhereville. He was anointed. Took some time for him to take the throne because it needed to be clear that God established his throne, not him. And then when he finally takes the throne, when he finally expels Israel's enemies, when he finally unites the tribes, when he builds the palace, when everything is finally settled and secure, he goes to sleep one night and he hears from God. He has a vision and God says to him the passage that we read earlier. God tells him, David, I established your throne and I'm making a covenant with you now. Your throne and your house will last forever. 
And you, there, there will never lack a descendant of David to sit on Israel's throne. I will be to you a father and you will be to me a son. So now David is the son of God. And then the kings that came from David, Solomon and so on, were known as the son of God. And God had promised that these sons would have a throne forever. Now, is there, are there two sons of God, the people and the king? No, one son of God. The king represented the people. The king embodied the nation. See it? So what is the son of God to the first century Jewish brain? It's the people of God embodied and represented in the king who establishes and protects the people, securing them in the land, leading them in faithfulness. And that king, that son of God, was not only brought out of Egypt, brought out of oppression by God's power, that son was established in the world by God's power. And that son will continue forever by God's power. And under the leadership of this son, the promise that God made to Abraham years ago when God told Abraham he would have a son, that that son would grow up to bless the whole world is going to come true. So to first century Jewish brain, the son of God is the divinely appointed king who embodies and represents the people of God in the world for the life of the world, to bless the world. That's what the Son of God is, like King David. And why is this important that he's telling this to Mary? Well, it's important and it's a big deal, and he's telling it to Mary because remember he's showing up in Gentile overrun Nazareth in the northern part of what used to be Israel that hadn't been Israel for over 800 years. And in the south where Jerusalem is, it hadn't been Israel for about 600 years. David had not had a descendant on the throne in that much time. There hadn't been a son of God in the world to represent God's people, establish God's people, expel the aggressors of God's people, lead God's people in flourishing and blessing for the life of the whole world. In at least 600 years, the Son of God has been absent. There was someone who claimed the title Son of God who was in the world at this time, but he wasn't part of Israel. It was Caesar Augustus. And he did embody the people, not God's people. And he did lead the world, but not in blessing, and not in flourishing, and not in peace. Mary didn't live in Israel. She lived in Galilee, the Gentiles, province of Rome. And her king wasn't God's legitimate son. It was an emperor who stole that title. And he was no son of David. And the peace in her world was no peace won by God's favored men. 
It was Pax Romana. It was a harsh, oppressive peace won by the sword. There was no forgiveness of sins. There was no hope. There was no restoration under Pax Romana. There was exile, diaspora, and silence. So when God shows up, well, when Gabriel shows up, speaking for God, and tells Mary that God's salvation is coming by way of a miracle in her, and that salvation is that the Son of God is about to be born. And God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary would have known exactly what the angel was talking about. Now, why is this important for us? Well, it's important for us. Remember last week when we talked about how the salvation that God is working, the big cosmic salvation God is working in the whole universe and the whole world is the same as the personal salvation he's working in each of our hearts. Remember that? There's no bifurcation between being personally reconciled with God and God renewing all things. Even though we love to try to make those separate in the Bible and God's plan, they're not separate. That's why this is important to us. Because God shows up to announce that salvation is here. And that means that people get to be reconciled to God and saved from their sins. The people get to be reconciled to God and saved from their sins that led them into exile and ruin and real life, actual people on the ground, real relationships, real society, real politics, real families, real jobs, real life is going to change as a result. This is not just a spiritual thing that's happening in your hearts. This is a whole world thing that God is doing. That's one reason why it's important. Because we tend to forget this. Here's another reason why it's important. Because Mary is the first Christian. Which means that what God, what was physically taking place in Mary, or about to take place physically in Mary, according to Gabriel's word, that she would conceive and that she would bear in her body this Son of God, this God saves, this Jesus, that would result in the salvation of the world. What was true physically of Mary in this time and place is true of every single Christian today spiritually. What physically takes place in Mary, according to God's word, spiritually takes place in every person who follows Mary's example and surrenders their life to God in faith. 
When I was a kid, it used to be real popular to explain the plan of salvation, the gospel, how we how we receive the gospel to somebody to say, well, what you need to do is you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And then somewhere along the line, somebody wrote a book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And that became uncool. Now, I haven't read that book, to be fair. But I can't tell you that according to the Bible, what it means to receive God's salvation, receive the gospel, is living with Jesus in your heart. So keep asking Jesus into your heart. Let me show you from the Bible. The Apostle Paul prays this for the little church in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Mary, the, the power of the Most High will come upon you, and the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and you will conceive, and you will give birth to a son, and his name will be Jesus. He will be the Son of God. Church in Ephesus, I pray that God, according to the riches of his glory, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Mary, you will conceive, and then you will give birth to a son, and he will be called the son of God. Paul writes to the church of Philippi, I'm confident in this. He who began a good work in you, Christians, will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. Do you see the parallels? Mary is us. Mary is us. Now we're out of time. So let me just wrap this up by saying this. Remember that Mary was a nobody living in a nobody town under the shadow of big empire. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but our church is very small. We're kind of nobody. And we don't draw that much attention. We don't have that much cultural influence. We live in a shadow of empire. This town is overrun by what we could probably call loosely in this context, empire. Now, God shows up and tells Mary that he is about to do a miracle of big time global restoration through God's man embodying and representing God's people and it is starting in her. And that's the gospel for Mary. Now folks, the gospel for us is the exact same gospel. You ask Jesus into your heart. He lives in your heart by faith. He lives in our church, Hope Presbyterian. Well, Christ in you is the hope of glory. You might be nobody, but Jesus is the Son of God. Where does he live? 